Well, here we are in our series in 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. Um, Again, more sagas of Paul and Timothy. But first, I do want to say happy Father's Day to all those dads there in the pews. Okay, happy Father's Day. All right. Um, Today is Father's Day, right? All right. Um, Also, uh, yesterday was Juneteenth. Um, If you don't know anything about this newly federal holiday, I would really encourage you uh, to do some research. Uh, Google it. You will learn a lot about the history of this country, Um, but also a time to now celebrate um, how far we've come. But we've got a long way to go. I'm done now. I'm going to get to the word. Second Timothy, chapter 2, starting in verse 14, the word of the Lord reads this way. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the election has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord part from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every. This is the word of God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that you may be complete, equipped For every good work, the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we ask for your spirit now and in the preaching of your word that you would uh, bless it, that it would fall on fresh soil. Lord, that you would help me to speak the truth and nothing but the truth. And Lord, whatever is not of you would fall off and would Jesus be made much of. Amen. Jesus has died, Jesus has risen, Jesus shall come again. That statement has been the church's calling card since its inception, the foundation of the church, and the hope of the church can be summarized in those 11 words. You can trace this simple but profound proclamation of good news 
throughout the church's history. It began in first century A.D. with those 12 disciples turned apostles who took this word of good news to Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Then Paul and Timothy and others who began planting churches that were founded on this very same confession. From there, the African church fathers who gave to the reformers theology made the good confession through the 5th century. It was this confession that kept and preserved the church during the days of Martin Luther and John Calvin, Francis E., Lemuel Haynes, and Matthew Henry. And here we are now in 2021, in the church's foundation, its hope remains the same. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Suffice to say that this institution, this organism, has stood tried and true through ages of wars, controversy, dictators, tyrants, pandemics, and hostile governments. The bride of Christ has withstood scandal, abuse, narcissists, slander, and sinners' kinds. Empires have fallen. Governments have toppled. Presidents have been impeached. Organizations, clubs, nation states have all been torn and rebuilt at nauseum because of these very same circumstances. However, you cannot say that of God's church. There was one other more insidious Dangerous foe the church has also withstood. The wolf in sheep's clothing. The false prophet. The so-called man or woman of God who devotes his or her life working against the church from the inside. They climb pulpits. They partake in session meetings. They sit at your dinner table preaching and teaching and sharing about things that's like the gospel. But in reality, their words are empty and deadly. Some of these wolves seem like they have walked with God for a long time. They talk like Christians. They walk like Christians. They may even smell like Christians. False prophets or false leaders are the dead walking amongst the living. And their objective is clear, disruption, deception, and spiritual death. When you raise the curtain of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 21, you get weighted with this content. You find yourself eavesdropping on a rather scathing soliloquy between Paul and Timothy. Paul is warning Timothy about a different kind of opponent, one making up residence in Timothy's own house. Here we are with a front row seat into the deadly implications of when Christian leadership opens themselves up to false doctrines. What I want to preach about for these next few moments, I believe that this text is tailored to teach you and I that the sacred call to shepherd God's people means Christian leadership must avoid what is but faithfully promote what is true. That didn't catch you. 
to borrow a phrase from another preacher in Chicago that may fall on you better than my own words. There are many roads that lead to danger, but there is only one road that leads to salvation. Amen. The first observation we glean from the text in verses 14 and 16, Paul in his way beckons Timothy to remind his church of something that Paul deems important. Twice, Paul calls into attention the need to avoid reckless chatter. Charge before God not to quarrel or fight over words, verse 14. Verse 16, but avoid irreverent babble, or as one translation says, avoid empty speech. Oh, empty speech. You know all about that kind of talk, don't you? It's the kind of talk that goes on when your boss keeps promising that promotion that never seems to come. It's the kind of talk when that flaky parent gets your hopes up, only to dash them yet again with another no-show. Or maybe when your spouse keeps saying they'll get better and do better, but nothing ever is. We're all well acquainted with empty speeches, empty words, words that hold no weight, promises that can't be kept. And then there's that other kind of talk that patience, the kind of talk that leads to controversy and disputes, the war over words and ideas and opinions, the kind of talk that instigates division, creates divisive lines in the sand, This past weekend, the largest Protestant denomination in this country met for their annual gathering to vote on their next denominational president. And according to some of these Christians, one candidate is characterized as one from the good old boy system of white conservatism, while the other candidate represents the alleged Marxist and liberal ideas around racial reconciliation. Both sides strongly believe that their point of view is the true Christian position, while the other position is antithetical to the gospel. Disputes about words, pointless chatter that is filled with allegation and supposed truth all have one thing in common. They both produce spiritual despondency and for Christian maturity. This is the context of Paul Stark's Stark's reminder. The church at Ephesus has been hit with their own kind of theological controversy. Timothy is dealing with a doctrine that turns deadly. One that strikes at the very core of the Christian gospel. One that calls into question the, the person and work of Jesus, the Christ. His name was Serenthius. You remember the name, maybe. He was one of those first wolves posed in sheep's clothing. Old Serenthius was public anyone in the eyes of the early church. Many scholars agree that where there was theological trouble, Brother Serenthius wasn't too far behind. From Brother John to Bishop Peter, teaching Elder Paul and Timothy, each one having their own rumble in the jungle with this character, Serenthius. Now this brother knew what he was doing. 
He's what my parents used to call a, a smooth grader. If you know that big uh, Daddy Kane reference, there you go. You ever, been, you, you ever been around someone that just had a way with words? Brother or sister could talk to a fish. Just, just knew how to talk to people. Knew how to sell anything. Would have you thinking that you were the best thing since sliced bread. That is the sentiment of Serenthius. He had folks in his church believing they were already experiencing a kind of resurrected life on this side of heaven. That one could simply assent to a certain intellectual knowledge of God, which would catapult the resurrected life. Scholars call this kind of thinking Gnosticism. We throw those big words around in church. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. It is a kind of pseudo or Christianity that teaches salvation can be granted or presently experienced via divine knowledge, spiritual intelligence, and esoteric thought. Or to coin it another way, the resurrection that is promised through Christianity is simply one of the mind and not the body. The material world, your body, the creation, all that you see, touch, smell, taste, is pointless. Life and salvation are purely intangible, according to this way of thinking. This is where you say, make it plain, preacher. I will. Thank you. Mysticism says, Jesus suffered and died for no reason. That he was not the son of God. Therefore, we don't need him to get to heaven or find salvation. We can simply think ourselves to God. It fractures the human experience into being one of just concepts and illusions. Therefore, your body and soul are pointless in this world. This is what, this is what young Timothy is up against. And what makes this kind of enemy so dangerous to the church is that it uses the very language of Scripture as its weapon. Yeah, see, Serenthius wasn't the OG of false prophets. No, he, he, he was just one more in a long line of others. And when you peruse the pages of the Old Testament, you will be quickly acquainted with any of other false prophets who speak like God, who use the words of God but carry no power. They try to sound good, but their words fall flat. Just ask for the, the passage that Katie so eloquently read earlier, who tried to rebel against Moses. They were fed up with the way things were going on out there in the wilderness. They were tired of listening to the words of Moses and by extension, the words of God. It was Moses' fault as to why the Israelites had to abandon Egypt. And, and now wander and circle in these woods. I mean, I don't know about you, but I would much rather wander around in woods with my freedom than be oppressed and stuck in chains as a slave to that old man, Pharaoh. And oh, how fast we humans forget what God has done for us. Our memories are so fleeting. In fact, I know that there is someone here this morning that needs to be reminded that just because your present situation isn't exactly the way it to be 
doesn't mean God has left your side. In fact, at some other point in your life, things were much worse and dire than what they are now. And here you are in church this morning, needing reminded of how God got you through that one predicament where you wasn't sure if the bills would be paid, if that loved one would make it out of the hospital. When tragedy fell upon your family, and here you are today with your own testimony of God's mercy and goodness towards you. It was a loss of a loved one or a child that kept you down. It was the thought that you would never be able to get back up again. And there he was, walking with you, talking with you, telling you it'll be all right. Maybe you're here this morning and that's the hope that you need to hear. It may seem like life is dark, but even in the dark, God takes your hand and he says you're his. Even when it seems impossible, God makes a way. Is there anybody here that knows what I'm talking about? Maybe I'm the only one that feels what God has done for me. Will you help me preach my sermon? I wish I had the time to preach it how I feel it, but, but I've got to go. So what does Korah do? He bucks the system. He recruits of Israel, whispers in their ear, tells them of a different path. Korah puts forth disputes, starts a fight with Moses over words and questions the words of God with his own ideas. He promises a better place than what God has provided. And there Moses is, pleading and pleading, but to no avail, Korah remains steadfast in his rebellion of God. What came of Korah and his men, you ask? God split the earth wide open, swallowed up their entire camp, closed the earth back, households, goods, all gone all of which happened in front of the rest of the people of God. Friends, this is the portrait, this is the picture of Paul's warning to Timothy to avoid at all costs teachings and theological controversies that carry not one iota of truth. They will leave you and I vulnerable to unmitigated godlessness, which in return causes those around us to stumble, to become anemic towards repentance, which promotes growth in Jesus. Or worse, it'll cause some of us to completely turn our back and walk away from God. In the pews, suffer when the leadership becomes enamored with and convinced of doctrines and ideas that call into question what Christians have rested on for over 2,000 years. And today, it may not be Gnosticism that plagues you, but as I look out into the horizon of culture, there are many things out there that are just as dangerous. Things like politics, nationalism that promises safety and power, pastors and seminary presidents who claim that in order to be Christian, one must vote a particular way. Then there is this kind of talk about the universe being your God. 
That, that spirituality is simply becoming one with the earth through giving and receiving positive energy, whatever that is. There are cultural fits out there claiming that the formula for happy, the happy and healthy life is only to take in positive energy that the universe puts out. They have reduced religion and spiritual things into moralism and feel-good-isms. This is what happened to Hymenaeus and Philetus there in the text. They drunk the Kool-Aid of theological error, and they found them lost on the road, nowhere to be found, and trying to convince others to get lost with them. The Bible says in verse 17 that they have swerved from the truth, saying the resurrection has already happened. And this was upsetting the faith of some in Timothy's church. That is to say, folks in the church were beginning to question their salvation. What a predicament. Beginning to worry if God had really saved them. They stayed up at night tossing and turning, afraid that God had reneged on his promises. Can you relate, church? Can you feel their anxiety, wondering if God really is who he says he is? Listening to a world that's against this kind of God. Being around students and friends who mock these words, who laugh at you. And there you are, lonely in bed, wondering, is God really going to save me? What we find in the lives of Hymenaeus and Philetus is what scholars call today conversion stories. Meet Rhett and Link, those former crew staff members who caused quite the storm when they shared their own version of deconversion stories, their testimony, their own public account of how they systematically walked away from the faith and how they sparked many other similar stories from the typical churchgoer who has refused to step foot in church again to the celebrity who was a new kind of way of living without God. Deconversion has become a sort of new kind of evangelism in these modern times. And in many of these stories, you hear about serious cases of abuse, scandal, and persons being treated with no dignity because of their sexual orientation or inclination. Now, these are real stories from real people with real hurt. And, and, and we cannot simply take them or dismiss them. And maybe that's why they left the church. Because maybe Christians have forgotten how to love, regardless of what people are carrying, regardless of the skin that they wear or the things that they're struggling with. I, I remember those old saints of yesterday saying that the church was a hospital for the sinner, for the broken. When did we become too good to accept all of God's kind? But oftentimes in these deconversion testimonies, you hear things that are simply just not true of God or, or, or of Christianity. Or things about God that they simply cannot agree with. So they throw all of him out together. 
All in all, many people are jumping onto this train, but they have no idea where it's going. And at the root of these deconversion stories is that they want God to be more like them rather than they being more like God. These are the kinds of messages and ideas that spread like gangrene according in verse 17. They slither their way into the church. They seep into the minds of Christians and offer false rewards and temporary fixes to eternal problems. This is the danger. This is the warning. But Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't leave you hopeless and defenseless. And the question that I'm sure that you want answered is what is the church's defense against these kinds of false doctrines? Well, look with me at verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Notice that definitive article there at the end of the verse, the. That didn't mean a whole lot to you. Word of truth. This is not any word or a word, or some words. No, this is a definitive, authoritative, transforming, and eternal word. A word that cuts through bone and marrow. A word that lights your path and guides your feet. It is a word that brings life to the dead. And when this word speaks, all other words kneel. This is the word Timothy is called to handle rightly, to make known publicly and privately the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be made known clearly and faithfully week in and week out. Whoever it is that climbs this pulpit ought to be preaching the hope and foundation of the church. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. That's the word. Elders and deacons, and leaders of Hope Presbyterian Church, this is your call. You have been called by God to steward the flock in your care. And that begins with promoting what is good and true, which in turn becomes a powerful repellent for cancerous narratives that try to spoil your faces. Paul transitions to the hope of our foundation. The word doesn't just protect, but it preserves. And the Lord knows those who are his. Therefore, he is the one that keeps you. And when you name his name, you too will avoid empty words and false prophets. When you trust in the living word, you be the living word. That's the difference between wolves and sheep. One tries to sound like the father but the other faithfully walks like the Father. I'm almost done. I'm, I'm about to take my seat. But as I there is something else this word does. Or shall I say did. This word of truth became flesh. You remember how John gospel, John's gospel began. In the beginning was the word. And that word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
What was intangible now became tangible. What spoke from up there was now speaking down here. It was Jesus who declared with his words that he is the way, that he is the truth, that he is the life. It was Jesus who put Satan in his place when he was being tempted in the wilderness by the power of his words. It was Jesus who said that in him all that was written in the law and prophets have now been fulfilled. Jesus, being fully God and fully man, did another thing too. I'm preaching it. Oh yeah, there was this other great controversy. This other dispute that had came to be long, long ago. It took place in a garden. There was a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. It was there in this garden where they chose to believe in false words. And it was in that moment that death had came into the world. Sin had gripped their soul and body. And when you and I came into the world, we inherited the same problem. It was a problem you couldn't fix. It was a problem you couldn't pay for. It was a problem you couldn't think out of. You needed help. Sin had claimed your soul and body. Life separated from God was the reality. But somewhere I heard about a man who hung on a tree, who bled, died for me. It was there on a mount called Calvary where the sun stood still, where darkness covered the land, where Jesus gave his last breath, uttered, it is finished. The debt that you carried was no more. The shame you brought with you had been gone. The pain you once felt, he took it. The problem that not fixed was fixed. You could see, you could see the holes from the nails in his wrists and ankles. He got about the grave and he didn't just bring his soul, he brought it too. And with his life and death and resurrection, Jesus has settled all disputes. He has silenced all theological debates and controversies. And when he returns, oh, yes, he will. You, too, will be walking and talking with a new body and a new soul, singing with a loud voice a new song. That, friends, is the hope of the church. That's the hope of your faith. They may feel like things can't get better. You may be here listening to false prophets. You may have even wandered astray. But there he is. There he is looking and pleading and wanting you to come back. And I don't know about you, but when this world continues to give me news, I'm glad I found good news. That's the message. How is it that the church has stood ages and ages? Because a man hung high, went down low, and sits on a throne. Let's pray. Jesus, your word is true. We may be tempted to believe in other things, but we know what you say does not come back void.
Would we hope on this word? Would we love this word? And as you come back very, very soon, Lord, would this word preserve us to that time? Amen.